Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Coding the Unknown. As always, I'm your host, Simon. Welcome to the... <laughs> Did I almost forget my name there for a second? It was just an unnecessary pause. I'm your host, Simon. I'm Ron Burgundy. <laughs> uh, this is an episode of Dragon Ghost Hunters number two. Uh, this was David, one of the regular writers on this show. He pitched me this like oh, a year ago. And I was like, okay, David, you want to just tell a story about you going on some like ghost tour? And I was like, David had done some really impressive work for me. So I was like, normally I'd decline this, David. But go on then. <laughs> Have a bit of a laugh. I'll pay you for to, to just write up some personal experiences. And it did really well. <laughs> so I was like, okay. A year has gone by and David has done it again. David's like, yeah, uh, can we do it again? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it did well. So go on then. The format of this show, if you're new here, never read this before. We're going to explore it together. Maybe decode some of the unknown. David has chosen the smallest font ever. <laughs> he did say there was some error exporting the PDF and for some reason, like, and I looked at it, I was like, looks fine. And now I've got it on my iPad. I'm like, oh, it's so tiny. I'll just zoom in. G'day, lads and lasses, Bruces and Sheilas, dingoes and possum, boars and ghouls. <laughs> Should I do that in Australia now? G'day, lads and lasses, Bruces and Sheilas, dingoes and possums, boars and girls. God, my Australian accent's terrible. It sounds like half American, doesn't it? It's my utmost pleasure. Nearly two years since our last hugely successful and cultural resonant masterpiece. Is that... Oh, God, now I'm sounding like South African. Uh, I'm just... Get, look, 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 enough. Enough, enough embarrassing myself. Let's just crack on in my normal voice. <laughs> Ongoing rumours on the internet since I started doing YouTube. Is that your real accent, Simon? I think you're an American just putting on a British accent to sound intelligent. Uh, it's like, no. <laughs> no, not really. Although that would be a, that would be a good thing, because for some reason people think that a British accent sounds smart. Americans, I mean. I think it's the only reason I'm successful, to be honest. It's my utmost pleasure, nearly two years! Oh my god, I thought it was a year ago. Time flies since our last hugely successful and culturally resonant masterpiece deliver you to your outstretched and trembling arms, one of the finest scientific works in human history, if not the greatest product of all human labours ever conceived and wrought into existence. I submit to you for the viewing and listening pleasure of your well-proportioned and aesthetically pleasing eyes and ears the best video on youtube ever past present and future i agree yeah this is it this is it forget that what's the best video on youtube ever i mean isn't the, the most viewed one's got to be some like crappy music video it's like uh what's that one that was super popular Des desperado despacito despacito i never heard that song a friend of mine's from puerto rico where those people are from and he was like you've never heard despacito and I'm like, I don't think so. And so he played it for me and he's like, oh no, I have heard this. But like once, like in a shopping center or something. I managed to avoid popular music because I don't listen to the radio because Spotify exists. And on Spotify, they've got really good. That Discover Weekly playlist is incredible. It's just like, here's music you'll probably like. And I'm like, oh my God, you know me, Spotify. You know me. And that's how I just discover music these days. Today, we shall uncover the truth about whether ghosts actually exist on a plane of existence beyond our own. They don't. Episode over. Or any plane whatsoever. Whether flying first class or coach, the answer may surprise you. It may shock you. Unless, of course, you thought ghosts don't fucking exist. What an unbelievably stupid fucking question. In which case, the answer won't surprise you at all. Spoiler alert! If you haven't already, be sure to check out the first episode of Drunken Ghost Hunters, which takes place at the Sydney Quarantine Station. This time, it's a haunted cabin in the Hunter Valley. Meanwhile, here's roughly how our investigations will work. Step one, get drunk, then go to the site of an alleged paranormal activity. The purpose of the aforestated alcoholic abulations is to antagonize the apparitions for reasons unknown to most ghost theorists, mostly because they're peddling bullshit. Ghosts react to the presence of humans. It's mostly hand-waved as ghosts and humans somehow detecting each other on the electromagnetic spectrum. 
And I love it when they're always like, yeah, it's electromagnetic. It's like, you don't know what the electromagnetic spectrum is, do you, friend? The ghosts, for some reason, run primarily on emotions and unfinished business. We hope to exploit those emotions and to affront and insult the ghosts. The purpose of the alcohol is to behave like arseholes in the hope of eliciting the most virulent and robust metaphysical response. If the ghosts drowned in a bathtub, we will pee in the bathtub. If the ghost was murdered by his wife's lover, we will laugh, jeer, and call him a cuck. <laughs> I'm watching this new uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger show on um, on Netflix. <laughs> There's this moment when he's like, my entire family... No, how's Arnold Schwarzenegger speak? He's Austrian. Oh, I'm not going to try, but he's like, my entire family's being cucked. <laughs> and the guy's like, I don't think you know what that means. <laughs> amazing. If the ghost was murdered by a former business partner, we'll read out estimates of how much the killer made after the victim's death in all hopes of summoning the most extreme paranormal responses. Bleeding walls, rattling floorboards, puking little girls possessed by demons, or the terrifying booming cry of Zool from the refrigerator while some eggs boil on the countertop. Step 2. Possibly vomit. Moan. Overdose on water. Lie in agony for six hours until the pain passes and you're just pathetically tired. <laughs> So true. Like, I don't know, like when I was a kid and you'd go out and you'd have like a bit of a binge or whatever and you'd come back and you'd be like, hey, the next day I feel fine. Boom. Turn 30 and it's like the same thing happens and it's like, I'm not right until like three o'clock in the afternoon. Like basically on the dot. And it's like, I know that until three, I'm just going to feel like shit. And you're just like, oh, mm, ah. For me, it's not so much headaches, but it's like that gut rot. Like where you're like, oh, I just feel sick. I just feel like I'm going to be sick. Oh, ah, oh, I'm never drinking again. And then three o'clock rolls around and you're like, bam, feeling good. Let's have a big meal and possibly a beer. Order greasy takeout. Question one's life's decisions. Vow to never behave so badly again. Then immediately forget the hangover vow after a good night's sleep. Exactly, David. Step three, head back to the haunted site during the daytime. Dried out and sober as a judge to quote unquote, signs the shit out of all the phenomena you observed in step one. Anything you observed previously has to be rationally and plausibly explained to the utmost extent that your intellect, the scientific method, and the laboratory equipment that was definitely not provided to you off the books by a former university colleague will allow. <laughs> that sounds like some breaking bad shit, you know, where he's stealing all those things from the, the school laboratory. Step four, get shit-faced again with your collaborators and write this unutterably idiotic but amusing script. Step five, wake up the next morning again full of regret and sense the more lascivious parts of the script before sending it off. For those sentences that are borderline, just say fuck it and see what happens. It's the internet, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and that is the foolproof methodology of drunken ghost hunters, TM. We've actually copywritten slash patented this format in multiple countries, so Hollywood, we look forward to your generous monetary office. You trashy, blood-sucking, lowest common denominator reality show peddling pieces of shit. That's a good way to get a job. The Dramatis Personae. Hi, my name's David. I have a PhD and other similarly overpriced wall decorations. <laughs> For 15 years, I've studied long-term patterns in human history, including publishing. Oh, David, this totally reminds me. Okay, this is where we're doing it. Hold on. In fact, this actually works much better than just a plug at the beginning because it's what we call organic. David has written a book. His giant brain, his PhD and his wall decorations has written a book called The Shortest History of the World by David Baker with a foreword by John Green, who uh, is one of the best-selling authors of all time, I'm pretty sure. Uh, he wrote that. He wrote that book. The Fault in Our Stars. A Fault in Our Stars? The Fault in Our Stars? I've not read it because I think it's for teenagers. Is it for teenagers? I'm not sure, but it's obviously very popular. And he wrote the forward to date. You know he's writing the forward for David's next book. <laughs> it's me. Uh, I don't know when that book's coming out, but get excited about that. And it's like, I didn't have any big shoes to fill after John Green wrote the first one. 
But David has written a book, The Shortest History of the World. I have read it. It's fantastic. Fascinating journey through life, the universe, and everything. It's not a long book, and somehow it covers everything. Um... Genuinely, I, I love these sorts of books. Like, the, my first exposure to books like this was... Have you guys read Bill Bryson? The Shortest History of... No, that's David's book. Um, Bill Bryson wrote a big science book back in the day. And I read that as a teenager and loved the shit out of it. And since then, I have loved these sort of um, popular non-fiction books. And that's what David has written. The Shortest History of the World. I'm sure it's available wherever you buy books, which is probably Amazon. <laughs> Barnes and Noble, I don't know, Waterstones, if you're in the UK. Um, pick it up. It's fantastic. That's what we call an organic plug. It's less professional. And I'm sure there's lots of stuff that I could say about this. How did time begin? What conditions led to humans evolving on it? It's a good book. Just go and buy it, all right? And then when David's next book comes out with a forward written by me, buy that as well, okay? I have considerable expertise in evolutionary biology, and I've worked with a Harvard physicist for over a decade on the complex dynamics of baryonic matter in the universe. <laughs> David, you're such- I don't even know what that means. Why is baryonic matter, David? Why didn't you explain it in the book, David? Then I would know. I published two trade books on natural and human history, three other books no one will read, and about two dozen academic articles that roughly ten people have read, five people understood, and two people actually liked. I'm the first of your overqualified ghost hunters for today. Most of you will know me from writing excessively detailed true crime for the casual criminalist. Yes, David. I would- you- you delivered me one the other day, it was like 50-something pages long, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna be- It literally took me an entire day, I had to carve out an entire day to record that. And it was a very enjoyable day, but it was very long. I'm in, sorry, we're, we're gonna get on with this, we're on page two, let's go. I'm joined by Alexandra. She would like to thank you for all the sexual propositions made in the comments of the last episode. Oh my god, the internet. <laughs> Stop it. But she thinks, quote, anonymous internet dick is overrated and prefers, quote, a long-term monogamous partner with an in-depth knowledge of my sexual fetishes. Again, her words, not mine. Oh my god, Alexandra, you are asking people to go off in the comments and make weird comments again. <laughs> oh no. She also has a PhD, recently snatched from the grips of the shitty post-secondary institution we birth worked at. Congratulations, Alex. And she immediately quit academia to run a small but lucrative company that deals in wildlife management and rural pest eradication. <laughs> Okay. Alex is a specialist in ecology, evolutionary theory, and human psychology. She's five foot. She's a five foot eleven spearfish, a hunter, and has more than once coldly shot a kangaroo in the face. All kangaroo meat sold in Australia is shot in the wild due to their impact on local farmers. I would. I would love to go to Australia. Like I've never been, and it really appeals. But it's really fucking far away. It's like you've got to be on a plane for like twenty four hours, and it's like it's been a long time since I've taken a holiday that's longer than a week. And then it's like, okay, well, it's twenty four hours on a plane, and then twenty four hours back. That's a really long ass time. But I don't know. I'd love to like go eat some kangaroo and throw a shrimp on the barbie. Maybe have some Fosters, which I know you don't actually drink. It's just a joke. Also, Alex is really tall. She's as tall as me. I'm a little well. A little over five foot eleven, I have you know. <laughs> I had a thing the other day that no one's ever five eleven. Everyone's always like six foot. So maybe I'm just gonna make. I'm just gonna be like, yeah, I'm six foot. <laughs> with my shoes on. <laughs> Alex has given me to permission to say that she is queen of the bogans, complete with anger issues, and she would rather punch a ghost or demon in the mouth or run it over with a ute than to flee, cower in the corner or piss in her pantaloons. I looked up what a ute was. It's some sort of pickup truck, right? I remember looking this up on the previous episode. Oh, or like a previous episode. I'm going to look it up again because I'm not sure. 
if it is a pickup truck. It's a utility vehicle, a pickup. Boom. But wait, there's more. Today's cast doesn't stop there. Last time, Alex and I joined a ghost tour, which gave us a multitude of test subjects to mine for reactions. This time, we were headed for a haunted cabin at a single location, so we felt the need to capture the perspective of witnesses who had no particular scientific training and had ambiguous attitudes towards ghosts and wildlife. <laughs> I feel like, have you guys seen that show? Um, is it Carl Pinkerton? He goes, he's like, um, he's this, he's a British guy who does a lot of work with Ricky Gervais. And the show, I've see, only seen a couple of episodes, but it's like they just send him to random countries. He's like the most, what was the word David used here? It just reminded me of him. Ambiguous. He's just, he's like, yeah, okay, I'll go there. Sure, why not? And then he does stuff and he's like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> This reminds me of this. Enter Jess, a 26-year-old female primary school teacher from the eastern suburbs of Sydney who has known Alex since early childhood. Prior to the ghost hunt, a distinction which is significant, she claimed that she believed in ghosts and supernatural occurrences and asserted that she was agnostic. I mean, I would say, I used to describe myself as an atheist, but I think I'm agnostic. I think that's where I'd describe myself. And, but that certainly doesn't mean I believe in ghosts and shit. It just means... I think my attitude towards atheism was just that it sounds a bit arrogant. It's like, okay, you really think that you're big brain enough to think that there couldn't possibly be anything bigger than you that you don't understand. And I'm like, that would be like the gorillas in the zoo being, or like not the gorillas in the zoo, but like um, the gorillas in a zoo who have been born in the zoo and are unaware of like the world at large, right? Then I feel like that's what atheists are like. They're like, yeah, there couldn't be, you know, the, the four walls of this enclosure that's it that's all we know and i'm like you're you're certain about that you're like 100 percent sure and i'm like there's no evidence for god in my opinion there's no evidence for a higher power but i'm not discounting the idea that it could be possible and that's why i generally describe myself as an agnostic it doesn't mean that i'm open to the idea of religion i think religion is fucking stupid um but the idea of like a higher power i don't think is stupid i don't think there's any proof of it but I think it would be arrogant to say that it's impossible. Fascinating tangent, Simon. Thanks for explaining your thoughts on atheism and agnosticism. We were all looking for that. <laughs> oh my god, we're gonna be here all day. <laughs> Regarding the existence of the afterlife and the truth of mainstream world religion, she's definitely said, quote, just don't know, but I believe there is something out there. I don't necessarily see that's not my agnosticism. I don't believe there is something out there. I'm just like, I don't I won't say it's Oh, no one cares, Simon. Let's just move on. <laughs> she also expressed a vague belief in the reliability of horoscopes. Whoa, 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 no. No, 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 no. Fun fact, horoscopes can be broadly likened to racism, okay? Because you're essentially prejudging a person's behavior and character based on how they were born. <laughs> okay, Davis, it's a bit much. <laughs> Jess is a lovely woman, total wifey material with proclivity for sundresses and Hallmark movies on Netflix who will pose as one of our test subjects on this suspicious occasion. I'd really struggle with someone who was into horoscopes. I'd be like, yeah, but you know it's silly, right? And they'd be like, well, I don't know, I think there could be some truth to that. I'd be like, no! I don't think I can handle that well. I don't, I'm just trying to think if I've ever had a girlfriend who's... I don't think I've ever, ever, who's been into this, because I'd just be like, no, 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 no. The other test subject is Ryan. He's a 21-year-old bartender at a wine bar and pizzeria around the corner from where I used to live. We were lining up the whole ghost adventure there one night, and I offered him a spot in the car. When asked about whether he believed in ghosts or not, he replied, and quote, who gives a shit? Ryan, man, my type of guy, like, exactly. That's the right answer. It's like, I don't fucking care. <laughs> That about sums it up. Ryan is currently attending TAFE, New South Wales Vocational College, in the hopes of becoming, quote, something easy that earns me a shit ton of money so I can impress the bitches. My man, Ryan! My man! 
You should get into YouTube, Ryan. He does not like Hallmark movies and prefers fishing and cheering for the Sydney Swans and Aussie Rules Football Club, the logo of which he has tattooed on his right leg. We here at the Whistler Philanthropic Foundation for Humanity felt that this selection of test subjects was a good cross-section of a typical, Austra- of typical Australian beliefs and personalities. And at any rate, fuck it, these were the people who agreed to come and we only had room for four people in the car. Expertly chosen equipment. On the Friday morning of our weekend stay in a haunted cabin, we <laughs> this is such an adventure. David's like, yeah, yeah, well, I've got my academic mate. We're going to go with her best friend and the dude from the pizza restaurant. <laughs> I'm fucking in. I wish I was there. On a Friday <laughs> I'd go to Australia for this shit. On the Friday morning of our weekend stay in a haunted cabin, we loaded up the trunk of the car with all our essential supplies. <laughs> got a little tear in my eye from how much I'm enjoying this. Ugh. This time we'd procured our own EMF reader. Uh, meter. A device used to detect abnormalities in electromagnetic fields. If a disturbance is picked up, the green light on the EMF reader turns red, thus signaling the possible presence of a ghost. In order to experiment with the EMF meter, we also brought along a few things that are known to disrupt electromagnetic fields. A TV remote, an electric generator, our mobile phones, and a pink vibrating dildo. <laughs> okay. The problem with EMF meters is that a billion and five fucking things can disrupt an electromagnetic field other than the presence of some spooky boys. We'd also acquired a spirit box or ghost box from Amazon. What the fuck is that? A ludicrously disproportionate expense. How much is a spirit box? Oh my god. Wait, it's not even real. I wish that I had a show which was the opposite of this, where it was like, yeah, drunken ghost hunters, and we found the ghosts. And if you'd like to find them too, please visit my shop, ghosthuntingequipment.com. That's probably a website, isn't it? I couldn't get that one. It'd be like ghosthuntingequipment.net because I couldn't get the .com where we'd sell ghost hunting equipment. And it'd be like just a giant grift of shit that we make in the basement and then and then just sell. <laughs> I like that. I like that. A spirit box turns on, filling the room with static noise as it rapidly flicks through FM and AM radio frequencies. A staple of ghost hunting shows, the snake oil salesman who hosts the show will stand in a dark room and ask the ghosts a series of intrusive questions. Apparently, the ghost can hear these questions on a different plane of existence and understand them perfectly. The ghost will then reply. The spirit box will inevitably pick up an EVP or electronic voice phenomenon, which is either some burble of static noise that excitable ghost hunters will interpret as any set of words which makes sense in the context, or which the hosts of the ghost hunting shows will fabricate entirely in post-production. <laughs> Our spirit box was also capable of recording the static and potential EVPs, so we could waste a couple of hours of our precious lives listening back to garbled noise over and over again. David, I hope I don't get an expense bill for this. Hi, Simon. I went out and uh, I, I I needed the spirit box. $700. <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry, they're Australian dollars, so it's not as expensive as you think. I say, oh, for fuck's sake. Rounding out our technological equipment, we brought along an infrared camera to capture any spooky boys in flagrant delicto. Oh, God. What does fla- in, in flagrant delicto, what does that mean? Am I going to have to look that up? In the very act of wrongdoing. Okay. Especially an act of sexual misconduct. I felt like it was sexual, but I didn't want to say so. A heavy-duty thermometer to detect slight and rapid changes in room temperature, a couple of simple motion sensors, and a run-of-the-mill Geiger counter to detect ghostly spikes in radiation should the EMF meter get distracted by the dildo. We also brought a Ouija board, because apparently Hasbro and Parker Brothers either like selling useless products to credulous idiots, or because they're secretly a pack of necromancers. I'm gonna guess, I'm gonna guess that it's not the necromancing thing and it's got to do with money, because they're giant corporations, and if there's one thing giant corporations love, it's money! We also brought a copy of 
of the Simon Necromonicon, an alleged book of the dead published in 1977 by the trendy Satanist Peter Lavander under the pseudonym Simon. Why would you choose that pseudonym? Which is a respectable name. But as far as pseudonyms go, you'd think it'd be a bit more creative. Yeah, couldn't you go with like a cool pseudonym like fucking Demon Hunter Boss Man or something? We figured we'd read out a few of the Sumerian gibberish incantations in the Necromonicon on the off chance that it would summon a demon or the devil himself. Holy shit. However, we couldn't be fucked staging the rituals and sacrifices the stupid book says it requires. <laughs> Why are you sacrificing? <laughs> So uh, yeah, the, we couldn't take the fifth. Se- we couldn't take anyone in the fifth seat in the car because that's where we've got the sacrificial goat. He's got the middle seat. And he smells. Goats smell terrible. Just the male goats. The female goats smell fine. I went to this uh, brewery. It's called Kozel Brewery, which literally means male goats brewery. And their mascot is this male goat, and he stinks. <laughs> you just like wander around. It's like, what's that smell? Oh yeah, that's the one male goat, and he just stinks up the whole place. Goats stink. And now when I eat goat's cheese, I'm just reminded of this stinky goat. In addition to all of that, we brought one bottle of Maker's Mark whiskey. Ooh, I like that. Uh, Maker's Mark whiskey is... I generally, it's not my favorite whiskey to drink neat. But when I have an Old Fashions, which is a cocktail I got into because of Mad Men, I think everyone got into that. I, I, I've just stuck with it because it's incredible. I usually make that with Maker's Mark. A bottle of Southern Comfort. Mm, less of a fan of Southern Comfort. It's a bit too sweet for me. A bottle of Bundaberg rum. Never heard of that. Bottle of Smirnoff vodka. Maker's Mark and Smirnoff vodka. What, did you go to the, well, not top shelf for the Maker's Mark, but like medium high. And then for Smirnoff, you were like, yeah, we get the cheapest vodka. And two six-packs of Newtoner beer. A six-pack of some IPA pineapple and passion fruit tropical-flavored beer that tasted like the Kool-Aid mascot jizzed in it. A liter of Coke, the soft drink, not the nose candy. A liter of lemon-lime bitters. A liter of ginger beer. A jug of tomato juice, Tabasco, and Worcester sauce to make Bloody Marys appropriate given the context. A pack of plastic cubs. A small cardboard box containing six shot glasses. There are four of you you guys are gonna get fucked up <laughs> additionally we bought 24 bottles of water several bags of potato chips a variety of chocolates and a bag of maltesers eight cans of chicken soup a bag of dried pasta and a couple of jars of tomato sauce a jar of pickles all to make makeshift hangover remedies unfortunately we could not purchase frozen chicken wings or pizza or the like because it would have defrosted in the trunk of the car during our journey we did however resolve to pick up more substantial sustenance for our regular meals once we got to our location one notable thing was absent from our supplies we neglected to purchase any wine because we were headed to the hunter valley for three blissful days of australian wine country this okay david you're going on a proper trip <laughs> i'll look at my next invoice for even me like script x number of dollars <laughs> expenses xxx number of dollars david <laughs> no i'm just kidding david died. even like reasonable stuff david was writing to someone in prison and they're like um there's this uh what's it called it's called jpay I think, and he's like, yeah, I'm using JPEG to like email with like <laughs> Gary Ridgway or someone. I'm like, holy shit. And I'm like, just just let me know how much it costs and I'll cover it. And he's like, no, nah, it's all good. So I don't expect, David's very nice about this stuff. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Once we arrived, we planned to stop up at a couple of vineyards to pick up a few bottles of wine to top off our otherwise meager alcohol supply. Just kidding. The amount we brought was already enough to get completely buttfuck insane. But we did plan to pick up two cases of wine regardless. It's not like you need to drink it all. Welcome to the Ghost Hunter Valley. The Hunter Valley is a sublimely picturesque region in New South Wales, a few hours' drive northwest of Sydney. It centers, somewhat predictably, around the Hunter River, with roughly 2.5 million tourists quite understandably rocking up to the Hunter Valley per year. You could scarcely imagine a more quintessentially Australian part of the world. Vast swaths of land carpeted with gum trees, the otherworldly wildlife of the Great Dividing Range, including kangaroos and wallabies, snakes and spiders. There are wide-open skies, painted a light, subtropical blue, and amid all that, 
some tiny country town stuffed with friendly happy-go-lucky people with cracky dingo accents think of jrr tolkien's the shire except with a bunch of hiding in the bushes that can kill you um yeah it's not a great great reference for me there david i'm not really sure what the shire is it's where all those characters live like legolas and shit right on their horses with bows and arrows maybe and like there's some dwarves <laughs> Perhaps less quintessentially Australian, the area is festooned with around 50 European-looking vineyards and large modern buildings that host weddings and bougie wine tours. The landscape is also dotted at intervals with hordes of pretentious aspirational arseholes taking pictures for Instagram to show the world how wonderful their lives always are before heading home to their extortionately high Sydney mortgage payments, traffic jams, office jobs, antidepressants, and Saturday afternoon white wine pass-outs on the couch. <laughs> fucking savage in 1797 less than a decade after the british first established a penal colony at botany bay an officer in the royal navy john shortland was sailing up the coast in pursuit of some escaped convicts who had preferred the dangers of the bush to serving out their sentence <laughs> i don't know if i was like sent off to australia well, obviously back in the day they don't do that nowadays because australia is not a colony anymore <laughs> thanks for explaining that simon we were all unsure um I'd, I'd be like, no, I'm going to stay in the penal colony, thanks. Because Australia's dangerous. There's all sorts of dangerous shit out there just waiting to kill you. Who is that dude? Uh, the Australian guy, obviously. Um, What the fuck was his name? Ah, he's super famous. Steve Irwin! And he's like swimming out there and he just gets killed! And I'm like, if that guy gets killed! Steve Irwin, the guy who knows how to handle like every like dangerous nature thing ever. If that guy gets killed, I don't stand a fucking chance. At the place where the city of Newcastle is today, Shortland discovered the mouth of a river which he named after the governor of New South Wales, John Hunter. This river became a vital artery for trade ships traveling from the interior. They carried timber and newly mined coal back to Sydney. In 1820, a man named John Howe led a team to carve out an overland route through the subtropical rainforest, the Lower Hunter Valley, where we would be staying. This region, with its temperate climate, fertile soil bequeathed by ancient extinct volcanoes, became quickly recognized as the ideal place for growing wine. Shortly after the British arrived in Sydney. They had tried to grow wine there, but the climate proved too damp and humid, and the results were fairly poor. The Hunter Valley, situated a short boat ride north of Sydney, was developed as an alternative, forming a monopoly on the wine supply for the city's burgeoning population. Wine production in the Hunter Valley exploded as a result. Sydney's authorities, meanwhile, encouraged the uptake of wine drinking as an alternative to high-alcohol-content spirits like gin or whiskey. It was thought the former convicts and common people would be less prone to violence and degeneracy if they tippled a bit of wine rather than knocking back the hard stuff. I mean, yeah, fair play to them. Wine does feel a lot more civilized than just like getting shit-faced on gin, doesn't it? Although gin's become quite classy in recent years because there's all these fancy gin cocktails and like gin bars and stuff like now that's a thing and you go there and there's like extremely expensive tonics and gins that somehow cost more than fancy whiskies and you're like maybe there's something to gin but i'm always like well we're putting in a cocktail how much of it do you really taste <laughs> is that if i've got fancy it, it's like me like maker's mark is what i have in my old fashions because there's no point using like lefroag lefroig lefroag how do you pronounce that it's like one of my favorites but now i'm forgetting i think i pronounced it lefroig forever and then i heard someone pronounce it lefroag and I'm like, surely that can't be right. It's Lefroig, right? It doesn't matter. Look, there's, I wouldn't put that in there because I'm like, well, it's getting mixed around with the bitters and the sugar and the ice and the orange. And you're like, 
Well, why not just use something less expensive? To a certain extent, that made sense. When you bear in mind that the earliest days of wine production, the beverage was more watered down and did not have as high alcohol content as the stuff that followed later at a devilish 12, 13, or 14 percent per 750 milliliters. That stuff followed later in the century as alcohol consumption and brain bludgeoning became the object in itself rather than being an alternative to drinking fresh water, which might contain a tasty dollop of cholera. To facilitate the growing wine economy, a number of trading posts and towns sprang up in the Hunter Valley, stretching across the river as the main artery of commerce. But the river was overtaken in the mid-19th century with the construction of the Great Northern Railway, which over the subsequent decades slowly reduced many places to literal ghost, town, ghost towns that are still creepy to walk around at night today. Prior to the arrival of the Pommy Bastards, the Hunter Valley was inhabited by numerous Aboriginal people. They arrived in the northern tip of Australia approximately 60,000 years ago, having migrated within just a few thousand years from Africa through India and down a series of land bridges that existed off the Malay Peninsula. After arriving in Australia, the Aboriginals gradually migrated down the continent until they arrived in New South Wales approximately 40,000 years ago. At the time of British first contact, the Hunter Valley and its surroundings were populated by the Wanarua, the Awabakal Darkinung and Warimai peoples, totaling an estimated 2,000 to 3,000 hunter-gatherers. However, in an age before germ theory even existed, British settlers brought with them a variety of Eurasian diseases like smallpox, for which the aboriginals had no natural immunity. Disease reduced the native population by approximately 70%. An additional 10% may have died from starvation as a result of hunting territory being transformed into farmland, and an estimated 2.5% may have died in violent clashes with the British settlers. Most of this horrific wave of death happened in the small space of time between 1797 and 1850. By the end of the 19th century, only a few hundred aboriginals were left. The dark Kinung people were entirely wiped out. Ah, colonialism. <laughs> Holy shit. According to some legends, the aggrieved spirits of the aboriginals who departed the mortal realm in agony still roam the Hunter Valley to this day. This is mildly refreshing from most Australian ghost legends, where eons of occupation by aboriginals, which should have produced thousands of ghosts, are completely ignored for the hauntings of a few Europeans who rocked up there in the past few generations and died of syphilis, a hangnail, a telltale heart, a raven that says forevermore, or whatever the fuck. <laughs> yeah, it's like a hangnail. That's like an ingrowing fingernail or something, right? And it's like that shit can get infected, and then you die. That's one of the only times I've had to take antibiotics, because like one of my toes got so bad, like it just started ingrowing one time. It was so painful, it got so nasty. I went to the doctor and he was like, oh boy, you need some antibiotics pronto. So they just gave me the antibiotics and it went away in a few days. And I'm like, oh my god, like a few years ago, that could have just like, they'd have to chop my toe off or some shit, and then I'll probably die from infection. It's like, god damn. I mean, it probably have been fine. But it was really nice to have those antibiotics because it just like it was so painful. I was like walking around, hobbling around with this horrible toe, and uh, then it was like just li literally two days later, it was like boom, gone. Medicine's incredible. Speaking of which, the Hunter Valley is replete with ghost stories about bushrangers, the escaped convicts who took a chance on life in the wilderness only to die of starvation, be murdered by other convicts, die in fights with local tribes, or at the fangs of a poisonous snake or spider, the venom of which has no known antidote. Yet, yeah, this is why I would stay in the prison camp. I'll be like, no, 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 I'm happy. I'll sit in the barracks. I'll chop the wood or whatever the fuck you want me to do. Just don't make me live with the spiders. There's also stories of coal miners who died in collapses, abusive landlords who were murdered by their angry tenants, travelers who fell afoul of bandits, farmers who died in house fires, hospital patients who died of dysentery, children who perished in tragic accidents, and shell-shocked soldiers who returned from the First World War only to uh, kill themselves. Um, so <laughs> David's like, should we bleep this out? And I'm like, I think kill themselves is okay, especially I'm kind of like, say it lazy like that. <laughs> 
that YouTube censorship is, is fairly heavy these days. It was into this cauldron of swirling fantasisms and ectoplasm that we find that we four plucky ghost hunters were diving. We were headed to a country cabin about an hour northwest of Newcastle. Note, an Australian country cabin is more like a cozy holiday cottage rather than a squat, dirty Unabomber affair. Yeah, that's why. Oh, okay. Maybe cabin in America is more like a literal cabin. It lay at the ends of a gravel road surrounded by green fields and beyond them hills covered with an endless dark canopy of towering eucalyptus trees. Inhabiting this cabin were reputedly six powerful spirits, two twin girls, the burnt man, the hunter, the convict, and the old soldier. And allegedly, in the very fields in which the cabin was situated were witnessed two centuries ago to the slaughter of a large group of aboriginal warriors by a British militia in retaliation for an attack on a local farm. <laughs> was this all in the Airbnb listed, David? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like a... Uh, pool beachfront haunted <laughs> you know when you check those options on airbnb one thing that really troubles me on airbnb they don't have an option for like children's equipment like so when i when i travel it's like yeah i want if there's some toys for the kids or even better yet like a swing and shit in the garden that's amazing but they never have this option on airbnb so you have to like look through the photos and it's insane so I always i'm like yeah children's cot high chair and then hope and then or just sift through hundreds of photos looking for stuff that's children appropriate airbnb put that option on there why is that not on there surely everyone with young children who's traveling is like yeah i need some shit for the kids to do because i don't want to travel with a swing it was here in the middle of nowhere on this cursed and bloodied soil that we intended to spend the next three nights okay i say you more that I, for some reason i was like yeah they're just going there for like one night and taking all this booze but it's like no 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 it's a bit longer the cabin itself is managed by a woman named fiona she is the manager of several holiday rental properties in the region along with running a charming bed and breakfast out of her own place interestingly the cabin in which we stayed was building two separate online tourism profiles either as a place of extreme paranormal activity for those interested in such things or alternatively as a place of tranquil relaxation nearby several high-class wineries with no mentions of ghosts in the second profile and where reviews didn't report any overnight distress i suppose with the pool of wingnuts and mystics being small one has to diversify one's marketing tactic on friday afternoon while we were made our way there we stopped off at a couple of wineries in the pacobin region and picked up a case of cheap hunter valley Semillon, a full-body dry white wine that given the six bottles cost us next to nothing could be forgiven for tasting vaguely of vinegar and turpentine we pulled our money to purchase a top-tier bottle of shiraz one of the region's specialties for roughly 400 australian dollars or a hundred dollars a piece jesus christ that's a proper bottle of wine right there we figured we'd drink it on the final night to celebrate a successful ghost hunt. That is until Alex wisely pointed out that we might get so fucked up on the first night that we'd impulsively decide to drink it at such a point of late-night inebriation that we could not properly taste it or barely remember it the following morning. Unless, of course, any of us were forced to enjoy it a second time amid our morning regurgitation. Oh, God. As such, Alex, Jess, Ryan, and I all agreed that the absurdly priced bottle of lovingly rotted grape juice would be our first port of call shortly after we arrived at the haunted cabin. Yes, 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 drink it first. Because on the last be like oh we gotta drink that super expensive wine i don't want to i just never want to drink again i bet it's good though 400 dollars bottle of wine that's a nice ass bottle of wine six residents four guests although i do feel there's a point with wine where i just don't appreciate it it's like you know it gets over a certain price point and i'm like bro i don't know like it's nice <laughs> i'm just not that expert six residents four guests 
The House of the Six is a fully restored and renovated colonial regency homestead built in the 1830s with a characteristic metal-hipped roof and ornate veranda out front. As mentioned, it's not so much a cabin as it is a cozy little cottage where one could pass a relaxing weekend in the countryside, or at least you could say that if it wasn't for all of the spooky ghosts, which definitely exist. I'm sure. Fiona, a cheerful suntan woman in the mid-60s, she is from Australia. Isn't everyone in Australia suntanned? It's like super hot all the time. If I was there, I, I, I'd still be like pasty white because I'd be like going outside for two minutes, slap on that factor 50. She very kindly met us at the property to hand over the keys. And as appears to be customary with the normal paranormal loving guests, a brief tour of the grounds for the next 20 minutes, we walked around the property while she gave a history of the place and the local spirits, along with some anecdotes of people's frightening encounters with them. This is what we in the ghost hunting game called front loading it's where you plant the seed in someone's brain about the presence of specters in order to increase the chance they'll interpret some innocuous bump in the night as something more sinister if you're on a business trip in oklahoma and stayed at a holiday in identical to pretty much every other holiday in around the world you'd think nothing of it you'd order some room service watch some crap tv and go to bed but if someone happened to mention in conversation at the hotel bar that this particular holiday inn was built on top of an Indian burial ground, no matter how rational a human being you were, there would come a point in the evening, just perhaps just before slumber, where your mind would flicker briefly toward the possibility that this place, where you're about to be unconscious and at your most vulnerable, might have some bad juju in its foundations. I'd be like, no, look, like I'm the most logical person, apparently, because I'd be like, oh, please, I'm just going to go watch some like television and go to sleep. You'd then shrug it off and go to sleep. Exactly! You'd go to sleep! In our case, Fiona's front-loading didn't have much of an effect on Alex or myself. We knew exactly what was going on and shot each other a wry smile, which Fiona did not detect. Jess took the situation a little more seriously and peppered Fiona with a few questions out of a mixture of anxiety and mere politeness. Ryan maintained a sullen bored silence throughout the tour, clearly eager to kick back on the veranda and start drinking. Ryan, my man! <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd give Brian a sideways glass and be like, bro, when we get those beers, man, come on, let's go. Ah, <laughs> oh, they're getting warm! Let's go! We were told that the cabin itself was originally built for farm laborers on a recently cleared patch of subtropical rainforest. Merely years before, allegedly, the forest had been stained with blood. As a group of aboriginal warriors, the precise name of the tribe was not mentioned, were cut down in a hail of bullets by British militia after a few of them had raided a local farm, stolen some livestock, and run a settler through with a spear. But later, researching the history of the region, we could find no evidence of such an event taking place. Retaliatory raids of this sort did happen across Australia, but they were reported to the British authorities who kept records. There were strict rules of conduct about what one could do on such raids, and any disproportionate or unnecessary violence or targeting of women and children would be punished as criminal offences. And therefore, they never happened. <laughs> Long live the Empire! <laughs> please. However, it is generally accepted that where there were retaliatory attacks on aboriginals that were never reported to the British authorities, perhaps because the level of force was questionable. What? Well, well, I never. But we could find no record of the precipitating event. A local farmer getting run through with a spear and his livestock would have almost certainly been recorded somewhere. So while the idea that the land was cursed from the start seemed like a good explanatory factor for why the place continued to build up paranormal energies, it appears that the whole thing is a bit of a touristy hokum. What a shocking surprise! This did not bode well for the veracity of the rest of the ghost stories. The cabin itself was a fairly conventional Australian Georgian design, four bedrooms all lined up on the right side of the house, all kitted out with newish beds and cozy looking doonas. 
This is what the Aussies call comforters or duvets with flowery patterns on them. Australians, tell me one thing. Do you do duvets or comforters like the British? Or do you do comforters or duvets like the Americans? Because there's a huge difference. I remember, I've told this story before. I don't know if I've told it on this channel, but I remember I went to the US and I've been many times. I went once, like a few times as an adult. But there was one time it really just stuck out to me. I was staying in like, it was a nice hotel. It was some like five-star hotel. It was fancy, relatively fancy. It was kind of like, it was kind of a shitty five-star hotel if there's such a thing. And I'm like, okay. So I go into the bedroom and there's like this comforter thing. And then the sheets. So you're supposed to sleep between the like base sheet and the sheet. And then there's this comforter, what we would call a duvet, that goes over the top. And obviously this isn't supposed to touch you because it's not been cleaned. It's like not some. It's like a blanket that you, in winter we would put on top of a duvet. Because in a hotel in Europe, you've got just the comforter, but it's bigger. And every time they change the sheets, I don't like the idea of like going into a hotel room and then there's this comforter on the bed that has not been washed because i'll sit on that i'll sit on top of it and i know all the people before me have sat on top of it it'd be like sleeping on the sofa like with your face and your body touching the sofa without sheets and i'm like at some point in the night my toes or like i'm gonna get wrapped up in the sheet or kick it off and at some point that comfort is touching me so every time i stay in american hotels like this i always have to turn the heating up and just sleep with the sheets it's weird i don't like it Australians, what do you do? Let me know. <laughs> Next time I go to America, I'm literally going to look up places that have washed it. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to take a sleeping bag. It's fucked up, America. It's fucked up. <laughs> if the owners had catered to Ghost Hunters exclusively, I imagine there would have been an attempt to retain furniture that was more antique and vaguely creepy. But I imagine such wingnuts traipsed through that small corner of the world only once in a blue moon. There were, however, a few strategically placed antique dolls, which indeed were unsettling enough. The floors were made of hardwoods, the walls painted hues of soft pink. On the left side of the cabin, headed back from the front doorway, was a small sitting room with a couch, a couple of comfy chairs, a flat screen TV, followed by a kitchen with all the mod cons, followed by again by a bathroom, a tub and a shower, newly tiled walls with a large flower decal on them. D Jesus, David, are you trying to sell the place to me? <laughs> I feel like I'm reading a property listing. Newly tiled walls, tasteful furniture, kitchen with all the mod cons. We're like, ooh, good, easy. There was no toilet. Um which was in a small room next door okay that makes more sense that's also something like in the uk we always have the shitter in the bathroom it's very it's it's not normally in a separate room i move to to czech republic where i live and the toilet's always separate from the bathroom like you've got your bathroom and the toilet's always in a different room like not always but a lot of the time and i find i find this weird like i take a shower and there's not a toilet in there like normally if i'm taking a shower i have a piss you know i close the door have a piss maybe a poo and then take a shower and it's like no you got to deal in another room like that's what it's like in my apartment <laughs> renovating your house and i'm like no 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 we're putting toilets in the bathrooms <laughs> and then also because it's like a check house there's also a separate toilet so each floor has like two toilets <laughs> it's like okay <laughs> Uh, this meant that after defecating, you'd have to exit the toilet and enter the bathroom to wash your hands. Oh, well, I mean, <laughs> there's obviously a sink in these toilet rooms. It's like there's a toilet and a sink. 
that's what there is. At least they'd installed a toilet rather than just shitting in a hole of out the backyard like great grandpappy Bruce probably used to do. Behind the toilet and also the bedrooms was another wide open area used for a dining room with a lovely mahogany table, new, not antique, and a couple of cabinets containing glasses, plates, and a smattering of ornate and fragile looking china. Beyond that was a screen back door which led to a small porch at the back of the cabin looking out across a field for a few hundred yards before the landscape turned to darkened bush. Heading down the porch stairs into the backyard, one could spy a small hut which I initially assumed to be an outhouse however upon opening it we found it looked like an old shower decidedly careworn not updated like the rest of the house with a stone floor and a drain in the ground except there was no water spigot over the top of the floor drain was a thick length of chain at the ends of which was attached a large rusty hook it was at this point that fiona told us one of the cabin's former residents the hunter was rumored to kidnap women european and aboriginal alike and keep them hanging in this small shed while he did what he pleased with them before eventually killing them holy shit fiona's like okay and here's the oven and this is the hook where the victims used to be hung on before he uh he destroyed them Masao. holy shit fiona <laughs> gonna sleep well tonight are we fiona as chilling as this little story was it struck alex and i as a little unfeasible given that a person's screams could easily issue out of the small wooden shed sure there weren't any other buildings around for a couple of miles but sound carries and all it would take is a single visitor or passerby and you'd be caught alex later opines that the shed was likely just a makeshift abattoir where you'd hang an animal carcass upside down while its blood ran down the drain so it was not so useful as a dis discreet r-word dungeon oh my god <laughs> Jesus. Throughout the tour, Fiona regaled us with tales about the cabin's long-term residents who had somewhat overstayed their welcome and failed to keep up with the rents. The oldest ghost was the burnt man, who evidently was a farm laborer who shared the place with other workers in the late 1830s. The burnt man was allegedly an opium addict and spent much of his off hours insensate and lying in bed in the room second from the front of the house one night he smoked so much opium that it sent him into a deep slumber however the pipe was still smoldering and the embers fell upon his bed sheets and set them alight the man completely out of his gourd on opium did not wake up until it was too late and he burned to death where he lay screaming in vain while the fire consumed him that's terrifying <laughs> i remember once allegedly i took uh hallucinogenic drugs <laughs> and it was like it was so intense like i i it was i was so out of my fucking mind that the house could have burned down and i'd just be like whoa the house is burning down i'm just not gonna get off this sofa though because it's, it's like okay that shit's crazy <laughs> Numerous guests have allegedly woken to the sound of a man's screams in the middle of the night. Audio hallucinations are not uncommon when just emerging from sleep, and the noises that one hears in one's dreams are muddled with noises that are happening in the waking world. It's hardly surprising an impressionable person front-loaded with the story of the burnt man might imagine such a thing happening. Unless, of course, that person was just an attention-seeking idiot or a hopeful person desperate to find any evidence whatsoever that ghosts exist. Or perhaps the guest accounts themselves were entirely concocted by Fiona. When looking at the second bedroom, we could see no evidence of fire on the walls but of course such damage which have long since been repaired and painted over nearly 200 years ago ryan our resident smoker volunteered to take the room given the association might summon up some juju from the burnt man naturally we admonished ryan not to smoke in bed <laughs> can you even smoke inside like surely not like every airbnb i stay in they're like don't smoke inside don't smoke inside don't smoke inside okay okay i'm not gonna smoke inside chill it's like do we need to have signs saying don't smoke in hotel rooms in 2023 we know we can't smoke in hotel rooms jesus when could we last do that the next long-term resident was the ghost of the convict australia had been used as a british penal colony for 80 years between 1788 and 1868 some 160,000 convicts were transported and today approximately 5 million of australia's population of 25 million or one in five people boasts some convict ancestry i myself am descended from british north america's first convicted mur murderer 
So I'm in good company. I feel like I know this. I think this came up in a previous video, David. Speaking of connections, the convict had not come from Britain, but had participated in the Lower Canada Rebellion of 1837, which was ultimately crushed by British troops. The convict had allegedly been sentenced to 21 years in prison and transported to a bay off the mouth of the Parramatta River in what is now Sydney. Today, it's named Canada Bay. The convict was pardoned three or four years into his sentence and spent the next decade working in Sydney, trying to save up enough money to board a ship back home. However, such voyages were hugely expensive in the age of sail, and the convict apparently gave up, headed north and in the night, and in the 1850s settled in the Hunter Valley, where he lived in the cabin for a few years, before dying alone and childless, a world away from his family. Holy shit, that's depressing. <laughs> He is said to occasionally overcome paying guests with a sudden feeling of extreme sadness or intense anger, especially when they sleep in the convict's bedroom at the front of the house or when guests sit on the veranda. Yeah, I'd be like just chilling out there, sipping on an IPA, having a smoke, and then it's like, oh, oh no, I'm so sad. I've been overcome with the convict's sadness. Oh, I'll just have another sip of this IPA and feel immediately better. A common trope, the phenomenon of being hit by a wave of emotion, is so stupidly vague and supremely untestable that I'm willing to dismiss such accounts as easily influenced people who already believe in ghosts, deluding themselves into thinking such emotions were somehow being projected onto them by an inanimate fucking structure, a pile of stone, wood, and nails, or perhaps the strong feelings of sadness and anger are the results of the guests realizing that they paid through the nose to sit in the cabin in the middle of nowhere for a holiday. It sounds lovely. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, I want to sit on the veranda. It sounds like warm and nice and kind of beautiful. I'll sit out there on that veranda and have a beer. It sounds lovely. Or a $400 bottle of wine. The convict story, however, strikes me as particularly curious because it's so specific. When some simplistic bilge about a pickpocket from London would have done just as well. Looking into those rebels who were transported to Sydney, we could find no sign of someone relocating to New South Wales in the Hunter Valley area, but the lack of such evidence certainly doesn't rule it out. In fact, the story is so specific that the ring of truth is likely based on the experience and travels of a real person. I ultimately wound up taking the front bedroom due to the Canadian connection perhaps if he appeared we'd have a lot to talk about uh david's canadian by the way he lives in australia but he's canadian and i think one of his parents is british because i was i used some british slang with david once and he was like i understand you because of my mother and i was like excellent news old chap although given he was a convict from the lower canada david must have loads of passports <laughs> british Canada, Australia. You could go anywhere on those. Those must be like some of the world's most, the best passports. You could go anywhere. Although given he was a convict from the Lower Canada Rebellion, the odds were overwhelmingly in favor of him speaking French rather than English. And my spoken French is très excrabable. Uh, I don't know if that's good or bad, David, to be honest, because my French is très bad. Perhaps were the most disturbing story was that alluded to earlier the hunter a man who lived in the cabin in the late 1870s until his disappearance in the 1890s he he'd work odd jobs around the area for the local farms and vineyards and supplement his diet by fishing and hunting game like kangaroos and larger birds like bush turkeys holy shit there are just like full-on turkeys wandering around in the bush god damn australia and apparently he'd also kidnap our word and murder women holy shit <laughs> okay the hunter's ghostly influence was accordingly the most malevolent. One would be struck by an impression of being unwelcome in the house, more with the fucking feelings. At least with a sudden rush of cold, you can measure it with a thermometer and figure out where the draft is coming from. People also reported seeing dark figures sitting on the chairs of the living room, or on the veranda, or on the deck out back. Visual hallucinations are easily explained if one is impressionable and feeling a little antsy at night. 
especially if you were front-loaded to be on the lookout for the ghost of a murderer. The hunter's bedroom at the back of the house was also a site of extreme paranormal activity. Allegedly, female guests would awaken in the night feeling a hand caressing the back of their neck or the feeling of fingertips tracing a line down their bodies underneath their bedclothes. Drafts and changes in air pressure can explain the stimulation of the hair follicles on the back of one's neck. As for the sensation of fingertips under the covers, it's either the product of paranoia, shifting fabric on sensitive skin when one is half asleep, or given it's Australia, you might want to flick on the light and make sure that a local insect or arachnid hasn't decided to spend the night in the same bed. Yeah, holy shit. It's like, I don't like that. I don't like that at all, Australia. That prospect to me sounds much more terrifying than a bloody ghost. The most extreme testimonials of the hunter's nighttime visits are covers being thrown violently off the bed or the guests being awake and pinned to the mattress by an unseen force. Covers can be explained by kicking, tossing, or turning in one sleep, accompanied by the force of sheer fucking gravity, even if you wake up halfway. As for being pinned to the bed, sleep paralysis is by no means uncommon, affecting approximately one in ten people over the course of their lives. Oh my god. That's that's like 10%. Is it sleep paralysis where you like wake up and you're like, oh, I can't move, can't move? That sounds terrifying. Sleep paralysis can be brought on by various causes, mostly related to insomnia, anxiety, and sleep deprivation. Oh my god, like, lately, lately, my kids wake up so bloody early. But yeah, I go to bed and I'm like super tired, but I'm just like, not really sleepy just yet. Just been a few nights and I'm just like, not really tired. And it's like, I should be tired, should be bloody exhausted, but I'm like, boop, 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 let's read a bit more of this book. Boop, 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 boop. I think it's because it's really hot. It's really hot, and you're just like, oh, okay, so hot. All of which might easily be explained by being a little freaked out from sleeping in the bedroom of a former murdering creep. I initially volunteered to sleep in the hunter's room to spare either Alex or Jess any sort of discomfort, but Alex somewhat sadistically insisted on the fair Jess staying in the hunter's room since he was female and decidedly on the fence about the existence of ghosts. <laughs> Let's terrify the shit out of Jess. If anyone was going to arouse some sort of supernatural phenomena, it would be Jess. I began to argue with Alex that there was a limit to the extent we could torture our two tagalongs, but then to both our surprise, Jess intrepidly declared that the room didn't bother her and she'd give it a go. To which Alex replied, That's the spirit, and if he pins you to the bed tonight, just raise your knee and crush his transparent little balls. The old soldier was allegedly a veteran from World War One, who, like many returning soldiers, was granted a plot of land in the Hunter Valley by the Australian government. He turned his hand to building a vineyard, but it didn't work out, so he began working as a delivery driver in between towns. The old soldier had a wife who, while he was away at war, died of some sort of wasting disease, probably diabetes. When the old soldier, oh yeah, it's like the past is like yeah, diabetes is just like a death sentence. It's like yeah, you got diabetes, you're fucked because they don't work out insulin and all that shit. Yeah, it's just like yeah, you're just gonna die. What was the? I wonder what the life expectancy of people with diabetes was before they had the diabetes cures. Or like, sorry, not cures, treatments. When the old, old soldier returned home, he collected his two twin daughters from relatives and they lived together in the cabin. Unfortunately, that same year, the twins died of the Spanish flu. Oh, guests have attested to seeing their ghostly figures playing on the veranda and in the back garden. They have also claimed to hear children laughing, the sound of running footsteps on the wood floors when no one else was there, and most creepily, the sound of children singing. Naturally, all of these phenomena occurred at night, making it all the more dubious that you could make out two children playing on the veranda or in the yard much less make out what sex they were. As for the audio hallucinations, their coincidence with a state of sleep and impressionable minds is too much to ignore. Children laughing and singing, if it occurred at all, might be the issuance of bored real-life children from the nearby town farting around in the area past curfew. Footsteps on wooden floors, meanwhile, can easily be mistaken for wood creaking from changes in temperature or rodents in the house or even possums on the roof. And the list of possible explanations for the noise goes up about a thousand. 
Yes, it's always something else. It's like, I got a little house in the country. Like, like it kind of sounds like this place. And it's like, yeah, when I'm lying in bed at night, it's like, even if I'm there just entirely by myself, you just be like lying in bed at night and you're like, what's that sound? Oh God, is there a murder in the attic? It's just low. It's just like it was hot and now it's cold. The wood's like creaking or then there's like a scattering sound. You're like, it's just mice in the attic or like... Uh, another one which i thought was mice in the attic but i'd had a mouse genocide like there were so many traps i killed so many mice because mice moved into the attic and then they were trapped and they were all killed and then i was like oh there's bloody mice back in the attic it turns out it was just like leaves and like pine cones falling onto the roof and then rolling down the sloped roof and it made me feel better because i just put it together and i was like oh, i know what that is oh it's not mice the mice aren't back because the mice are fucking bold like they'd been there for so long they were just like coming down the stairs and like eating the food and shit and stuff for god's sake and it's like i'm fine with mice like i know mice are not that bad but my wife not so fine with the mice she was like i don't like coming here when there are mice okay sorry where are we as for the old soldier, he lived on for a couple of decades into the late 1930s before killing himself. Apparently, after the death of his daughters, he became a recluse and a drunk. Accordingly, his supernatural activities are largely relegated to being a bloody nuisance. Bottles and other glassware were reported to go flying off shelves. Doors would slam on their own. Windows would fly open and shut. And an invisible entrance would knock on the front door in the middle of the night. Presumably, the old soldier was drunk and had forgotten his keys. Most alarmingly, people would awake in the middle of the night to see a cloaked figure standing by the side of their bed, cackling loudly. The doors flying shut we contribute to the wind. The windows, probably the same thing. Although we investigated them and the mechanisms were several decades old and some locks just may slip loose once in a while. The knocking on the door at night has no explanation other than someone playing a prank or else a guest imagining the whole thing. As for the cloaked figure, see above for guests imagining things or else they there is more nuanced explanation of a half-awake lucid dream, with shadows forming on the bedroom wall being mistaken for ghosts as people awake. And any visual hallucinations more pronounced than that would require medical intervention, since it might imply either a tumor in the brain, a concerning chemical imbalance, or some form of severe mental illness. Or, as I always mention, carbon monoxide. So get a carbon monoxide detector. If you're in some place that's like allegedly haunted as an Airbnb, make sure that you know they've got their like safety implements, you know, like smoke detector and shit. Just make sure they got carbon monoxide detector there as well because that's what's you know one of the reasons they they speculate that the number of ghost sightings and stuff has gone down so massively is because there's now more awareness of carbon dioxide and what it can do to your brain like make you hallucinate and then die the old soldier slept in the front bedroom of the house same as the convict meanwhile the twins slept in the second bedroom behind it same as the burnt man both Ryan and I were in for a potentially crowded night. As for the third bedroom, it had no ghosts and was occupied by Alex, remarking that she was glad that at least she'd get a good night's sleep. I said I doubted it and reminded her that we were going to get pissed as parrots on the first night. Hardly anybody was going to sleep well, ghosts or no. As for the impact of the tour on our test subjects, Jess, as mentioned, courageously volunteered to sleep in the hunter's room, albeit after Alex coaxed her into it. Jess seemed only a little discomforted at the idea, but was mostly cheerful and putting a brave face on. Ryan, meanwhile, once Fiona had left, joked that, quote, the fuckwits are charging too much to rent this place. Did you hear how many people died here? Place is a fucking death trap. <laughs> Yeah, it'd be like, what was that? I made a joke in a previous episode about like if there was a, if there was a haunted house or whatever, if it was cheaper, I'd definitely buy that shit. I'd be like, yeah, well, I don't believe in ghosts, so I'll just get a nice discount. The piss up. Alex got in the car and drove to a nearby service station to see if she could find some dinner time victuals, comestibles, and provisions. <laughs> What's a comestible? 
We had hoped that the service station had some frozen meals that could pass muster for the night, otherwise it meant a longer drive for Alex into town. While she was gone, Ryan wasted no time heading out to the veranda, putting his feet up and cracking open a bottle of beer, which he chased with a bit of bourbon whiskey. Legend. <laughs> Jess and I politely waited for Alex's return. Well, partial politeness in my case, I was already half-dreading the hangover. After roughly 30 minutes, Alex rocked back up to the cabin with a couple of frozen pizzas for dinner and some fresh milk for morning coffee or tea. I was the only tea drinker in the group, having grown up drinking PG tips, not coffee. Meanwhile, Australians can be insufferably pretentious wankstains about their coffee culture, particularly in the big cities, that I maintain my habits in petty protest. Alex also brought a couple of cartons of ice cream, though we doubted we'd be tucking into it that night. The pizzas went in the oven while we cracked open the fancy bottle of Shiraz. <laughs> mm, frozen pizza and a $400 bottle of wine. This is where you might expect me to pompously say that it had loads of blackberry, blueberry, plum, cherry chocolate licorice tobacco vanilla and margot robbie's armpit sweat or whatever the fuck i've never gone in for that sommelier shit swishing it around your mouth and imagining you could taste spectral hints of random food and substances that were nowhere near the winemaking process it's about two levels above listening to static on a spirit box imagining you've heard an evp more on that later furthermore i find expensive wines start to show diminishing returns after about 80 dollars yes agreed I'm not saying the really fancy stuff doesn't taste better, I'm just saying that after about $80, you might get an extra $2 of actual added value for every $50 that you pay. All I'll say is that the fancy Shiraz had the typical syrupy smoothness of an expensive wine, completely liberated from the acrid fumes of alcohol and the harsh aftertaste of the cheaper stuff, but that's neither here nor fucking there. I don't know, David, that sounds pretty fucking good, to be honest. I'm like, it is quarter to 11 in the morning, and I'm like, that sounds pretty damn tasty. What is more pertinent is the fact that between the four of us, we'd inhaled the entire bottle within 25 minutes before the two pizzas were even finished cooking. A bad sign. Over dinner, we cracked open a bottle of Semillon, then another. The volume got louder. Alex and I got increasingly foul-mouthed and loquacious. Jess got very red in the cheeks and giggled at everything from actual jokes to Alex and my drunken soliloquies to the patterns on the couch cushions. Ryan, who had paired his glasses of wine with more bourbon whiskey, got a dull, glassy look in his eyes and a shape to his mouth like he had sucked on a lemon. <laughs> he mostly resided in silence and he got as he got progressively fucked up. We started toying with the EMF meter, attacking it alternately with the TV remote and the dildo before he got bored. For the record, the dildo belonged to no one in particular. It had been purchased for the expedition. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Employing a used one just seemed a bit weird. Yes, agreed. After that, we started reading passages of the Simon Necromonion, punctuating the incantations with calling the devil a can't say that word, C word, and basically saying, come at me bro. The Necromonion proved to be something of a disappointment, with the surprising dearth of actual demonic phrases in ancient languages in the book. And the writing was such unbelievable 1970s San Francisco Satanist dreck produced by an obvious huckster that we soon lost patience with it. By the time we cracked open the third bottle of Simulion, remains of the second pizza had been entirely forgotten, meaning that we were drinking on half-empty stomachs, another bad sign. I'm like, yeah, there's four of you? Four adults sharing two frozen pizzas? That's not enough food for any frozen pizzas are small and it's not like they've got doughy crusts they always have that weird ass frozen pizza crust which tastes horrible it's more like a sort of weird biscuit um that's not enough food my guys somewhere in the chaos of the third bottle of simulion jess stopped drinking for the evening evincing a sort of instinctual modesty and good sense as i said in the introduction 
total wifey material. At this point in the evening, I'd say that each of us had consumed around six to eight standard drinks, with Ryan's total being considerably higher due to his slurping down of bourbon. From that point forward, the exact amount consumed becomes little blurry. I monopolized a fourth bottle of Simeon all to myself. Alex began drinking Southern Comfort, a New Orleans substance that people either love or hate, which is something between a whiskey and a sweet liqueur. Initially, she added ice to it, though I noticed as the evening advanced, she ceased to bother and just dumped it in her glass al dente, completely undiluted. Jess, bless her heart, seemed to alternate between ginger beer, water, and giggling. Ryan hopped from whiskey to rum to straight vodka. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> to wine to beer and back again. In a nutshell, he got absolutely shit-faced very early in the night. Chalk that up to the folly of youth. <laughs> that mixing of drinks. Ah. Oh. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my old man body's like, no, no. It was at this point in the evening that the quote-unquote ghost abuse began. There were two ground rules which all of us mostly obeyed. No one could go off alone in the dark, except when time came to pass out, since being alone in the dark is more likely to trigger paranoia and delusions of ghostly encounters without another person being there to corroborate things. The second ground rule was that we were forbidden from trying to scare each other, since that would place our senses on ultra-high alert, again risking some delusions of otherworldly activity. The second rule required extra enforcement in Ryan's case, who tried to make Alex jump by creeping up behind her. But after she threatened to make him sleep outside, he desisted. Our aggressions were to be entirely focused on the ghosts. We fired up the spirit box. We were all eager to contact the ghost of the hunter, whom we called the Bogan Bill Cosby, and discount Ted Bunsey. Alex, as is her drunken fashion with the ghosts of sex predators, began to make countless references to the likely diminutive size of the hunter's penis. She then went out to the makeshift abattoir in the backyard and placed the pink dildo inside it so he could, quote, go fuck himself. The spirit box, meanwhile, yielded nothing but static, though I think for a few milliseconds we picked up a local rock station. We also cracked open a tropical beer and placed it next to an empty chair in the old in case the old soldier wanted to join us nobody else was drinking it when that did not seem to elicit a supernatural response brian went over snorted disgustingly and spat in it still nothing for the twins alex busted out her laptop and put on a children's cartoon on youtube for their entertainment and when that failed she navigated over to pornhub found a pornographic video involving adult twins having their mouths used in unhygienic ways so that the ghostly twins could go see what they missed on oh, jesus christ what the fuck? I'm ashamed to say that we had porno playing in the background for a rather unseemly length of time over the course of the evening. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I think it was mostly because Alex thought it was hilarious. She eventually went and placed the laptop on the bed of the second bedroom where the twins allegedly slept. Jess declared that she thought this was going a little too far since the ghosts were little kids. <laughs> Alex snorted and pointed out they were actually over a century old and, quote, also ghosts don't exist, so fuck it. We then sat down with the Ouija board and started asking questions to thin air. Once it became clear that Ryan and to a lesser extent Jess couldn't be trusted not to move the cursor deliberately or involuntary, Alex and I operated the thing as a duo, intent on keeping the thing stalk still. We sat for an extraordinarily long time without the cursor moving at all. <laughs> this is it. Like if I used a Ouija board, that shit wouldn't move because I'd be like, "Don't move it. Don't move it. Not moving it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna allow the spirits to move it. Nothing, because it's not real." Then the cursor started drifting slowly across the board, spelling out gibberish. Numerous studies have been conducted that found the drifting of the cursor, even when you're making a concerted attempt not to play into the supernatural nonsense, is the result of involuntary muscle movements and spasms. Really? Particularly after you've laid hands on the thing for a long time and your subconscious generating thoughts and responses to questions, even when your conscious mind might be resistant to it. Sounds like a useful tool for, like, psychologists or something, doesn't it? 
At some point during the Ouija board experiment, the door to the toilet slammed shut, making all of us jump out of our skin. We went over and scanned the thing with both the EMF meter, the Geiger counter, and the infrared camera, but found nothing above the baseline. Frustrated at this, Alex Ryan and I went into the second bedroom and smoked Ryan's cigarettes, blowing the smoke at the bed in order to provoke the burnt man. <laughs> You're gonna lose your deposit. It generated no effect other than to momentarily relax the tension headache that I was already getting and accelerate my heart rate, which was already elevated from alcohol abuse. It was beginning to get late into the evening, at least in terms of our flagging consciousness, when Ryan started to roll around on the carpet in the sitting room, drunkenly shouting in slurred cadences that, quote, the house was angry and the house needed blood. <laughs> Love this shit. Ryan claims to have no memory of doing this, which is plausible, given how utterly plastic he would be. Yet the occurrence was odd. Yeah, I'd not be like, it's not a ghost, just Ryan's bugged out of his gourd and is having a laugh. There are three possible explanations. One, Ryan was fucking with us. Two, Ryan was reacting adversely to the less than legal substances we suspected he was taking in addition to a boatload of alcohol. Three, he was possessed by a demon who demanded blood in the form of a human sacrifice, but apparently was one of those cowardly demons since it stopped demanding blood once we told Ryan to shut the fuck up. <laughs> Sometime around 1am, I passed out on the couch of the sitting room. I woke up at 4am by Alex shaking me awake. She told me that Jess had had a nightmare about the hunter breaking into her bedroom by the window and was a little bit freaked out. Initially, Jess said she wanted to sleep in the car, but Alex dissuaded her and convinced her to share the bed in her quote-unquote ghost-free room. Alex and I went to the hunter's room and could find no remarkable reading on either the EMF meter or the Geiger counter. We did, however, see a small heat signature on the wood floor near the door. At this point, I went to the toilet, dry-heaved, and then went to my bedroom and flung myself under the covers, still wearing my clothes. I did not fall back to sleep, but lay there in semi-conscious, heart-palpitating agony for a few hours, scrolling through Twitter and YouTube on my phone. <laughs> oh god, it's gonna be terrible tomorrow. Haunted by a hangover. I emerged from my bedroom at around 7am. Yeah, I'm also this person. It's oh, so, so rough last night. Why can't I just be asleep until like 11? And it'd be like 7 o'clock. Let's wake up. <laughs> Feeling terrible. I was the only one up. I discovered the bottle of Southern Comfort had fallen to the floor at some point during the night, pouring out all its contents. I drank a couple of glasses of water, dry heaved again, and went back to bed. I spoke to a couple of friends via Instagram DM. A few hours later, at 10am, I had other people stirring around the house. I got up, unwilling to change out of last night's clothes, and went to the bathroom to brush my teeth, which proved difficult, given how sensitive the wine had made them the night before. I had functionally just eaten a bowl of sugar. I made myself a cup of tea and bummed another one of Ryan's cigarettes, which made me feel better for a few minutes, despite those things only accelerating my heart rate. I then curled up in the fetal position on the couch and speculated quietly how long it would take an ambulance to get there if I started to die. At 1pm, I dry heaved for a third time, and finally, I began to feel a bit better. The agony phase had passed, and after that, I was just tired. Ah, oh, 1pm for you, David. Me, it's always like 3. It's like, ah! Boy, that was, that was an intense night. Um, probably even later than three. As for the others, Ryan took the strategy of making himself a couple of Bloody Marys with copious amounts of vodka in the proverbial hair of the dog treatment. He vomited it all up early in the afternoon and spent the rest of the day smoking and lying in bed. Again, the burnt man did not make an appearance. Ryan could not prevent the rest of us from joining him in drinking again, but at one point I did make myself a virgin Bloody Mary, heavy on the Tabasco and Worcester sauce, since I find that spice is very comforting in a hangover. Yeah, I loved, I love like virgin Bloody Marys. Like tomato juice, big fan. Tabasco, Worcester sauce, love it all. 
My mouth is watering thinking about that, actually. Alex was doggedly determined to eat something, but we had neglected to get breakfast food the day before, so she munched on the leftover pizza. She also drank three or four cups of coffee. She too vomited up the stuff in the early afternoon. But all told, she was in better shape than Ryan. Jess and I could not be coaxed to consume any solid food until dinner time when we began picking through various hangover remedies. Jess had drunk the least of us, and it showed. She even went out for a walk around tea time to clear her head. I did not join her, as I felt in my hungover-induced anxiety that I would drop dead of a hang heart attack. Yeah, the hangover anxiety is not something I ever had until I became an adult. I remember hanging out with a friend of mine and we were drinking pretty heavily and he was like, he was maybe 10 years older than me and he was like, dude, have you got to the stage yet where you just wake up and you're just anxious the next day? And I'm like, no, not yet. That's probably not going to happen. Why would I be anxious for no reason? And then like, yeah, no, that happens. And I was like, oh, why do I feel anxious? <laughs> this is not nice. When it got dark, I went to my bedroom, closed the door, and fell asleep listening to YouTube videos at low volume so as not to disturb the others. I woke up every few hours experiencing lucid dreams about traveling in airports and train stations and enduring a gross, sweaty, listless sleep. Thus passed the hangover day. There were no ghostly occurrences of any sort whatsoever. There were ultimately Alex and Jess switched bedrooms. The investigation. Alex woke me up early Sunday morning, saying she'd been to the service station and had made everybody bacon and eggs. Indeed, I could smell the blessed fragrance issuing from the kitchen. Alex sternly reminded me, quote, Don't sleep all day. We've got some science shit to do. Fuck science, I replied groggily. I was now, at the age of 36, at the point where hangovers don't last one day but two. Ha! Huh, David and I are the same age. I don't know how I didn't know that. I, I, I thought, for some reason, I thought David was a few years younger than me. But that's nice. My heart rate had still not returned to normal, and I felt someone had bludgeoned my brain out of my skull with a brick and duct taped it to a telephone pole. Alex replied, Don't fuck science, mate. Science fucks you. Which might have impressed me more for its wittiness if I hadn't heard her use the line before. Still top marks as far as one-liners go. Instead, I grumbled and staggered out into the kitchen to guzzle down some scrambled eggs and bacon with a healthy dose of tea, which my Aussie acquaintances did not hesitate to give me shit for drinking. After a slow start to the morning, Alex and I got to work investigating what little phenomenon had occurred two nights before. And there, I will have to apologize, dear listener, since the majority of ghost occurrences that we've discussed so far are from Fiona's stories about other guests. The odds were always going to be low that we experienced anything spooky ourselves. As it was, it came out that the bottle of Southern Comfort had fallen on the floor not because of the old soldier, but because Ryan had thought it would be funny to smash it on the ground to freak us out. Unfortunately, the bottle was so thick that it did not, not smash easily, so Ryan just settled for dumping its contents on the floor of the kitchen and leaving it at that. After that story came out, Alex was annoyed, since she was the one who had to clean it up. Meanwhile, when it came to the door of the toilet slamming, while we played with the Ouija board, it didn't take long for us to figure out that it was the result of the open window and the air pressure acting on a condensed space of the small room. While the room was reasonably long from the door to the shitter at the back wall, it was exceedingly narrow. That seems like a much more plausible explanation, one of the ghosts wanting some privacy while they splattered the bowl with some translucent turds. Yeah, I mean, it does. It can still be like quite a long way away, as long as the pressure's there. Like, in my apartment, if we've got like one window open somewhere, and another window somewhere else and like there's some pressure thing like someone opens a door or whatever one of them will slam shut it can be on the other side of the apartment just like bang and you're like oh yeah okay windows open oh well Jess's nightmare had arisen solely in her subconscious, and she did not experience any sort of delusion that Hunter was actually in her bedroom once she'd woken up. She was a little freaked out at the time, but by Sunday had completely calmed down and was laughing about it. 
This left the heat signature, which we found on the floor by the door. Oh yeah, that was the only, like, even remotely unexplained thing. Using the infrared camera again, Alex and I noticed the heat signature was no longer there. After a frustrating 45 minutes trying to come up with an explanation for it, Ryan hopped in the shower. It was then that we realized that the heat signature on the floor was coming from the pipes connecting the hot water system outside the cabin to the bathroom across the hall from Jess slash the hunter's room. Sure enough, using the infrared camera again while Ryan was in the shower, the heat signature had returned. And that was our somewhat anticlimactic ghost investigation. Yet if you are exploding ghost myths, I suppose every investigation is going to be somewhat anticlimactic. I mean, unless you're making shit up on like the History Channel or whatever. That afternoon we all went on a winery tour, and a merry time was had by all. I did notice, however, that our consumption of wine during and after the tour was very modest indeed. Even with Ryan, some harrowing experiences take time to fade into memory before we can comfortably repeat our mistakes again. Monkey and Shoes 2 Electric Bully Humans are pattern-seeking creatures. It's how we went from stone doors to skyscrapers in the blink of an evolutionary eye. Covered in David's book, The Shortest History of the World. Check it out. We are highly instinctual creatures afraid of imagined threats in the dark. Combing those impulses with a certain wishful thinking about the existence of an afterlife and hundreds of generations of folklore, and voila! ghosts. And I can sympathize with the appeal of wanting something to exist beyond the grave. Another instinct of ours is to be terrified and repulsed by the eventual disappearances of our consciousness, even though our bodies will simply be recycled back into the earth and the atoms that once constituted us will never disappear from the universe for trillions of years. Yeah, but our consciousness is gone and that's terrifying. If we didn't revolt against the idea of our consciousness disappearing, our fear of death, we would have long since gone extinct as a species. But take comfort in the fact that this is only a temporary sensation before we spend the rest of eternity under anesthesia. <laughs> oh, dang. It. I don't like it. Yet if someone were to offer me immortality by uploading my consciousness to a computer or reversing the aging process via CRISPR gene editing, you can bet the animal in me would bloody well take it. God damn right. When I people sometimes are like, no, I wouldn't do that. I'm like, what the fuck is this? What's wrong with you? What's biologically wrong with you? In the meantime, our inclination to believe that ghostly apparitions do indeed go bump in the night will always lurk in a tiny corner of our primate brains. Nevertheless, no credible scientific study has ever revealed a whisper of such things actually existing on the electromagnetic spectrum. All the supposed quote-unquote proof of ghosts, either anecdotal, hearsay, easily debunkable pseudoscience, or non-falsifiable claptrap. And furthermore, remember that what is asserted without single solid evidence can be dismissed without solid evidence. Sweet dreams sleep tight yeah and that's where we end today's video <laughs> these are so random but i do thoroughly enjoy reading about david's adventures if you enjoyed this episode make sure you like it subscribe and if you're listening to this in its podcast form well thank you very much leave a review and i'll see you next time seeking the truth never gets old Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.